invite you to go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I made mention of it in the prayer. Here we have the true story when Jesus fed the 5,000. So that's where we are this morning, John 6, 1 through 15. So go ahead and turn there and I will read it for us and we'll dive right in. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then... And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The purpose of John's gospel is for us to see glory whenever we see Jesus. John 1.14, the very first chapter of the book, John said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So if John could walk into this room this morning and we could ask him, John, you were an eyewitness of Jesus. What was he like? John would look at us and say, he is full of grace and truth. Everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said would light up the sky with unimaginable glory if you had the eyes to see it. Because some people saw Jesus and thought he was worthy of death. Some people saw Jesus and thought he was worthy of praise. The difference is whether or not you see Jesus and see glory. One of the ways that John shows us the glory of Jesus in this book is by exposing the many signs that he performed. That's what he tells us at the end of the book in chapter 20. 
The last two chapters of chapter 20, here's what John says. You don't have to turn that, I'll read it for you. We read this almost every Sunday, actually. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the ones in the book, the one in the Gospel of John. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did many, many other miracles, which John calls signs. He did so many that it's actually impossible to contain them all in this book. Therefore, John was selective. He reported some of Jesus's signs and the ones that he included are included for the expressed purpose of us reading them and believing in Jesus because we see his glory. And by believing in him, we would have eternal life. That's the purpose of this book. And this morning, we come across one of those signs. One of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed. And it's actually the only miracle that's found in all four of the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The miracle is when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the multitudes, with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And he did this as a sign. We have to remember, don't we, that signs are not the point. They make a point. And the point that they make in the Gospel of John time and time again is that Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is the Lamb of God that would lay down his life as a ransom for many. And there may not be a more clear connection between the sign that Jesus performs and the point that the sign is making than when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in order to see that connection, we have to take the whole chapter as a unit. Because John chapter 6 really is an entire unit of its own, which might actually take us a few weeks to walk through all of it, but it's really just broken down into two major sections. In John 6, 1 through 15, which we just read, we have the miracle. In John 6, 16 through 71, rest of the chapter, we have the message. So verses 1 through 15... Is Jesus performing a miracle? Verses 16 through 71 is Jesus proclaiming a message. Miracle message, performing, proclaiming. That's the flow of John chapter 6. So he begins in this chapter by providing the people with bread. He ends the chapter by proclaiming to the people that he is the bread. He is the bread of life that God has given to the world so that whoever comes to him will no longer be hungry again. Look at verse 35 in chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the point of verses 1 through 15 that we just read. That Jesus satisfies, that he gives life, that yes, you come and partake of bread to live physically, but you come and partake of Jesus to live forever. 
That's the point of this miracle. The question is, will you see it? So before we dive into the story, I want to show you something that I noticed about signs, seeing signs in this chapter. If you look at verse 2, John tells us why the people follow Jesus. It says, a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They were following him because they saw signs. But when we look at verse 26, later in the chapter, after Jesus feeds the crowd, the people are still following him. And look at what Jesus says about why. Now here's verse 26. We're going to compare that with verse 2. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So do you see the difference between verse 2 and verse 26? One says they're following Jesus because they saw the signs he performed. The other says they're following Jesus not because they saw the signs he performed, but just because their bellies were filled. So which is it? Are they following Jesus because they saw signs or not? The answer is that both verse 2 and verse 26 are right. They're both right. The verses are actually saying the same exact thing. They just talk about seeing signs a little bit differently. In verse 2, the people saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. They physically saw with the eyes in their head that Jesus was healing sick people. So they saw it physically, but nothing more. And so they followed him because they were impressed with it. They liked it. And in verse 26, it's the same. Jesus doesn't mean to tell us that, that they didn't physically see him feed them. He means that they didn't truly see the sign for what it is. They just had their bellies filled. So these people are impressed with healing. These people are impressed with eating, but they're not impressed with who Jesus truly is. They see the signs, but they don't really see the signs. They think the sign is the point. And they miss the point that the sign is making. Imagine going down the highway and you see an exit sign and you should realize the exit sign is pointing to the exit ramp. But you think the exit sign itself is the exit and you drive right into it. You've missed the point. The sign is pointing to the point. It's not the point. This is foundational for our lives. Because many people are impressed with the miracle worker, Jesus. Many people are impressed with the feel-good Jesus, the moral Jesus, maybe the hippie Jesus, maybe the freeing us from Roman captivity Jesus. But as soon as Jesus plainly tells us the point of all of this, that he is the bread of life and we're dead without him, they don't want him anymore. 
That's why in verse 41, it says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm cool with Jesus doing what I want him to do. I'm not cool with Jesus doing what he came to do. I'm cool with Jesus feeding me because I'm hungry, but I'm not cool with Jesus being the food that I need to live. I'm cool with Jesus healing my physical ailments, but I'm not cool with Jesus saying my soul needs to be healed. I'm cool with Jesus freeing me from captivity to oppressors, but I'm not cool with Jesus freeing me from my sin. There are only two kinds of responses to this passage. Once you realize that what Jesus came to do was not just to give bread, but to be bread, the two choices are clear. You can come to him as the bread of life and live or not. Verses 66 through 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Will you respond to Jesus by turning away from him? Offended by what this message really means? Or will you say, there's nowhere else for me to go for life than to him? Now, what I plan for us to do is to move through this story with some pace. Uh, today, we're just going to focus on the first 15 verses briefly. We're just focusing on the miracle that he performs. We're going to make a few observations, a few applications along the way. And then next week, I plan for us to begin walking through the message that Jesus is preaching in light of this through the rest of this chapter. So it might take us a few weeks to complete the chapter. Um, but this morning, we're in the miracle itself, the first 15 verses, and I want us to see four things. I want us to see the Passover, the problem, the provision, and the prophet. The Passover, the problem, the provision, and the prophet. We begin with the Passover. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So here he is crossing the sea. He makes his way to the top of the mountain. The disciples might think it's going to be personal time with Jesus to relax and hear from him. But when they get to the top, as verse five says, they lift up their eyes and he saw a large crowd was coming toward him. So it becomes abundantly clear this is not going to be one on 12 time, Jesus and his disciples, because there's a large crowd coming and they're coming, as verse four said, on Passover. Three times throughout this book, John mentions the Passover. This is the second time. And each time the Passover is mentioned, there's a reference to Jesus' death in the context. The first time was all the way back in chapter 2. 
When Jesus refers to the temple being destroyed and raised up in three days. He said that on the Passover. And the temple being destroyed and raised up in three days is ultimately referring to his death and his resurrection. So that was the first instance of the Passover. The last instance of the Passover is in chapter 11 during the time of his death. And in between those two, we have this one mentioned right here in chapter 6 where he feeds the multitudes with the bread. And right after he feeds them, as we'll see in the coming weeks, he talks about how he himself is the bread of life and that the people must feast on him. And like the other two times, he mentions his death. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is the true manna. He is the living bread. He is the Passover feast. He is the Passover lamb because he will die for sinners in their place. Now, what was Passover? It was a holiday that was celebrated by the Jews to celebrate the exodus out of Egyptian slavery. So we're talking about 15 centuries before John chapter 6. God had performed all these marvelous signs in Egypt to deliver his people. From Egyptian slavery. And the last one that God performs is the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And so, in order to have the firstborn of the Israelites saved and not killed, they would take the blood of a lamb and they would put it on the doorposts so that they would be passed over and the firstborns would live and they wouldn't die. Instead, the lamb that they ate, that they killed in its place, die. Now think about it. That's the Passover. And each time the Passover is mentioned in the Gospel of John, there's a connection to Jesus' death. Why might that be? Why might John be doing that? Is it possible that John wants us to see that Jesus is the true Passover lamb who dies in the spot of sinners? You see, there's so much more going on in this text than just a simple miracle. I think there's even more connections for us to make here. It was Moses who led Israel during the Exodus and the first Passover. God had performed wonderful signs through Moses in Egypt. And here Jesus has performed wonderful signs. Moses had an entire nation following him out of slavery. And here Jesus has a multitude following him. Moses went up on a mountain to hear from God. Here Jesus goes up on a mountain. Moses and the Israelites were given bread from heaven when they were in the wilderness called manna. Here Jesus feeds the people bread. And friends, these connections to Moses are not just random arbitrary arbitrary things I'm pulling out of thin air. In the immediate context, Moses is being spoken about. At the end of the previous chapter, in chapter 5, Jesus said this to the Jews. Don't think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, 
on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So friends, Moses wrote about Jesus and now Jesus is showing them that he's the fulfillment of all that Moses wrote. So that's Moses being talked about before the miracle, but even right after the miracle in verses 32 through 33 in chapter six, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You have to remember that for the Jews, Moses was the greatest. He was their national leader freeing the people from slavery. But he wasn't just a national leader. He was a religious leader. He heard from God and he wrote down all that God said, all these commandments. One commentator said it would be like taking George Washington and the Pope, the influence of both of them and putting them together in one person. That's how important this person is. The nation founder and the religion founder. But here we see that Jesus is greater than Moses. The signs aren't the point. Moses isn't the point. Jesus is the point. Hebrews 3.3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He is the true and greater Moses. He is the true and greater Passover lamb. He is the true and greater bread. So church, this story of feeding the multitudes should be pinging in our minds a plethora of connections to the Old Testament so that we would look at Jesus and see his glory. But on this Passover, we see a second thing. There's a problem. There's a multitude of hungry people and no way to feed them. Verse 10 tells us it was 5,000 men. When you add the women and children, which Matthew lets us know that it was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So there were women and children there. When you add the women and children, D.A. Carson suggests you might have had 20,000 people who were there. So this is a large crowd and they're hungry. It's a problem. So look at Jesus in verse five, lifting up his eyes. Then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, I love what verse 6 says. The question that we should be asking, does Jesus really not know where to buy bread? Is Jesus himself running out of ideas on what to do? Has he ran into a problem that he cannot solve? And verse 6 tells us, that he said this to Philip to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus' question to Philip is a test. He knew what he would do. I love that Jesus knew that he was going to perform a miracle here, but instead of just doing it, he chose to involve his disciples. He wants them to recognize the problem that is at hand. He wants them to feel how hopeless they are on their own, how needy they are for his help. 
And this, this, this miracle was not just for the crowds. It was for his followers. It was for his disciples. How many times would they come across problems? They do not know how to face them. And they would be able to remember this. So Philip answers like many of us would. Verse 7. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That's a serious problem. Because a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. And most people in that time ate daily bread. They would get their day's wage. They would go and buy daily food, daily bread to feed their family. So 200 denarii would be 200 days worth of wages, which could buy you essentially 200 days worth of bread for your family. That means around eight months worth of bread for a family. And even with that amount, there are so many people that they wouldn't even be able to have a little bite. So they don't have money to fix the problem. But now Andrew steps on the scene. And at first he sounds like he's, he's acting with faith. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. If it stopped right there, we'd say, way to go, Andrew. You trust Jesus. Five barley loaves and two fish. And then Andrew says, but what are they for so many? He also feels hopeless. I mean, 200 days worth of bread isn't going to cut it. What's five loaves going to do, Andrew? These are barley loaves. This was poor man's bread. They were more like a biscuit. It's about the size of them. Imagine walking in the Golden Corral with just dozens of people and all they have is five biscuits. It's a serious problem. And this problem is much worse than that. There's thousands of people and the disciples are realizing they can do nothing to fix it. So of course, Andrew and Philip are in despair. They feel hopeless about the situation. And we might be sitting here thinking, come on guys, you've seen Jesus perform all of these miracles He's healed the sick. Surely he can feed a crowd. Why are you so forgetful? Why do you lack faith? Jesus is right there. And I'm instantly reminded of how many times that Jesus has proven himself to me and I still doubt. To where our tendency is still to run to worldly solutions. We have 200 denarii. That's not going to do it. And our hope and our lack of hope rests in what we think we can provide on our own. My dear friends, we have problems so deep, so expansive, so real with no way to solve them. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure if you're a believer, if you're just asking questions about Christianity and about Jesus, the truth of the matter is, is that you have a sin problem that is separating you from God. And it's a sin problem that you cannot fix on your own. The Bible says that we are dead in our sin. And death is a condition that we can't fix. Our good deeds are like five loaves of bread trying to satisfy 20,000 people. It simply won't work. 
Or if you're a believer, you might have a stack of struggles that's right before you that you see, sin that you have yet to experience victory over, anxiety, depression that's looming over you every day of your life, worry and fear amounting, hopelessness that your needs are not going to be met. And for both the Christian and the non-Christian, the tendency is going to be for us to look at our problems and try to solve them by worldly means. And whenever we can't, to just despair. Like Philip, you begin thinking in terms of money. Or like Andrew, you just begin looking around you for what you have and what you can muster up. And in both scenarios, if you're truly honest with yourself, you do not have what it takes to fix your problem on your own. There's something about coming to grips with the helplessness of our condition that helps us see our need for Jesus. And so I think he's asking all of us what he asked Philip. Where are we going to get bread to feed all the people? Where are you going to get forgiveness for your sin? Where are you going to get satisfaction for your deepest cravings? Where are you going to get strength to carry on tomorrow? Where are you going to get the courage to follow and to obey him even when it's hard? We have to admit that we do not have it on our own. We need Jesus to provide. And that's what we see next in this passage. We see Jesus' provision. So let's read verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 5,000 men plus women and children, only five loaves of bread and two fish. But Jesus prays to the Father and takes those seven items of food and provides. And the statements of provision here are incredible. First, you have verse 11 where it says, He fed them as much as they wanted. Now, it would have already been impressive if Jesus said, Guys, we only have seven items of food, so we're going to ration this out to make this work. That would have even been impressive. But Jesus didn't ration the food. Instead, all of this food turned into an all-you-can-eat buffet to where it says that they had as much as they wanted. We see Jesus' provision. It also says this in verse 12. When they had eaten their fill. So thousands of people, seven items of food. Everybody was fed and everybody was full. Not a single person wanted some more. They were satisfied. You can almost imagine after you've had a full course meal, you take a deep breath and you say, hey, I think I ate too much. That's what everybody here in this field is doing. Five loaves of bread, two fish, and everybody feels like they ate too much. This is remarkable provision. 
But we see even more of it in verses 12 and 13 because Jesus tells his disciples to go and pick up all the leftovers. So everyone had as much as they wanted. They were all full. And when they were done, there were 12 baskets worth of fragments of bread left over, which means you don't need 12 baskets for five loaves of bread and two fish, which means because of Jesus's provision, they had more at the end than they did at the beginning. You can't make this math equation work unless Jesus is God. And that's the point. So when we go back to our hopeless and helpless problems that we just discussed, with us, it is impossible. With Jesus, all things are possible. We need his provision. I'm reminded Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So for the dead in sin, Jesus provides eternal life. For the hungry soul, Jesus is the bread of life. For the thirsty heart, Jesus is the living water. For the struggling saint, struggling with sin, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you that your faith would not fail. For the lusting Christian, Jesus provides self-control. For the tired mom, Jesus provides rest. There is not a problem that you will face from top to bottom, big to small, that Jesus can't fix. The question is whether or not you trust in his provision. So the last thing we come to this morning is the prophet. Let's read verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, so he fed them, they said, this is indeed the prophet who, had, who is to come into the world. Now, at that point, what they're saying there sounds right. Because they're referring to Deuteronomy 18, when God promised to raise up another prophet after Moses. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So they're thinking this is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18 that is here. Jesus is the prophet. He is all that Moses couldn't be because Moses wasn't God. But the question is, what do they mean when they call Jesus the prophet? When I was at Southeastern, uh, I had a couple classes with Danny Aiken, and he used to always say that two people can have the same vocabulary but different dictionaries. So we can say the same words but mean two totally different things by them. And God did promise to raise up a prophet after Moses, and the people are calling Jesus the prophet after Moses. They're using the same exact vocabulary, but they do not mean the same thing. We get a glimpse of that in the final verse for today, verse 15. So here's what happens right after the people call Jesus the prophet. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So their idea of the prophet king was like Moses freeing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. In their mind, Jesus didn't come to free them from captivity to sin. He came to free them from captivity to Rome. He came to be a military leader. And so they wanted to grab Jesus by force. 
They were cool with Jesus so long as he fit their agenda. They were cool with Jesus so long as he came to do their will. But we're reminded time and time again in this book that Jesus did not come to do the will of men. He came to do the will of his father. Yes, he is the king. But his kingdom is different than what these people had in mind. We have to be reminded that the only Jesus who saves is the real and true Jesus. Not the one that we think of. um, Just as a figment of our imagination. So we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting in the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus that we've created? Are we following Jesus no matter what or do we have a Jesus in mind who really just follows us? I came across this quote in Josh Redberg's commentary on John. I think it perfectly displays what's going on here between what Jesus came to do and what these people want him to do. Here's what it says. They wanted to make Jesus king But before he would wear the crown of gold, he chose to wear a crown of thorns. Before he would sit on the throne, he would hang on a cross. The crucifixion would come before the coronation. See, friends, Jesus came to die. He came to be the Passover lamb. He didn't come to raise a spear. He came to have a spear thrust into his side. He came not to just give bread. He came to be bread. And the bread that he gave for the life of the world was his flesh, broken and battered on a cross. So the king, and he truly is a king, who sits enthroned, once laid in a tomb so that we would never have to. That's what this sign is all about. And he offers to the world that all who come to him will never hunger again. And so the question I ask you as we close is, do you see Jesus in this story and do you see his glory?